there, and welcome to another episode of Shouting in the Evening, brought to you by the Scheidt International Theatre Company. Please make yourselves comfortable. The performance is about to begin. Please get up. I might as well talk to a wall. This vacation was such a mistake. Sandy is a bore. Sandy, come on. I try to stay civil, but I've had it with her royal laziness. If she exercised more, if she drank less, if she ate healthy foods, anything... But come on, move a little, Sandy. Looking back on our arguments, I wish I had known she was dying. We, we thought she was beating the odds. In remission, they said. Who knew her remission had remitted? Dr. Sandra Hunter is an epidemiologist at Tulane University. Our friendship borders on sisterhood. That is, we we don't always get along. In fact, Sandy isn't an easy friend. I thought what we liked about a person or place was one thing and what we disliked was another. This is not necessarily true. More often than not, what we like and dislike are simply two sides of the same quality, both attracting and repelling. And this is how it is with Sandy. She is a great and uncommonly difficult friend. Nothing goes unnoticed and little is left without commentary. It isn't that Sandy doesn't suffer fools lightly. She doesn't suffer fools at all. It is the fool who does the suffering. Her assessments are gallingly spot on and probably useful if I ever care to listen. But every once in a while, a quiet, unopinionated Sandy would be a pleasant relief. Anyway, it seems to me that Sandy's life isn't so perfect either. Who does she think she is giving me advice? Okay, okay, maybe in retrospect it is good advice. So we're friends who argue, disagree, insult each other, and never stop being friends. Sandy traveled frequently. She became enchanted with the sensuality of tango and Buenos Aires and vowed to take up the dance. Unfortunately, upon her return to the States... She faced the diagnosis of breast cancer. Learning tango was supplanted by learning to survive. Sandy no longer had the time or energy for learning new dances. When I began to study tango, we joked that she had willed me to be her surrogate. (laughs) Well, and perhaps she had. Sandy manages her cancer with audacity. With bravado, she posts black and white before and after pictures of her double mastectomy around her house. 
She cracks jokes about her newly constructed breasts and regales whoever will listen to private details of incisions and operations. It's all tasteless. It's all over the top. And it's all Sandy, a hard-drinking Irish woman with a crop of curly red hair. Clarel, 38, I believe. When she can no longer keep up her own hair color and manicures, her black standard poodle fills in the void. At the door, a well-groomed poodle with multicolored Mardi Gras nails and a brilliant purple and gold beaded collar greets me. In the French Quarter, we shop at Trash Divas for a feather boa to hide Sandy's facial palsy. Style. Even tacky style is better than no style at all. Sandy is one of the first women. Those of us in our 40s and 50s who went first. The first to speak here or there. The first to be invited to sit on a particular panel. The first to join some old boys club. There are hundreds of us, we first women. The places we were first never made the news, but... They made us tough, perhaps a little too tough. We taunt each other with a sort of, I had to tolerate the bigger fool's one-upmanship. I got a yellow blender from my college when I was awarded outstanding woman of the graduating class. When the government forced my first boss to hire women, he put us on a separate pay scale from the men and made us wear mini skirts. The head of the department actually grabbed my ass when I approached the podium. (laughs) Well, when I told Ross I was married an African-American, he had me thrown out of the office. Well, thank God they let me ride the elevator down to the bottom floor before they tossed me out. The main problem with our stories is that we keep acquiring new ones. Sandy and I have nerdy occupations, but I hate the sound of that word, nerd. Such a masculine moniker. Young women we dub nerdettes, but we claim the title of nerdonas for ourselves. We enjoy our self-proclaimed stature and importance. We are enablers to each other's addictive grandiosity. We are both single, but for very different reasons. When Sandy was in her 20s, she fell in love. She stayed in love long after John left her and returned to his home country, long after he married another woman, long after his career made him internationally prominent, and long after he told her he was dying. Loving John was the only thing I ever knew Sandy to do quietly. Sandy's bright blue house on the edge of the French Quarter is one of the old slave houses that sits side by side with New Orleans' antebellum mansions. Although it contains much of the paraphernalia of a dying person, there is no aura of illness. In Sandy's house, life overwhelms death. Photos and mementos of friends, family, and her ever-present annoying dogs crowd the walls, tabletops, windowsills, and even the ledge of the toilet tank. I am struck by how much we have acquired together. 
These are my souvenirs too. We have shared a history. Many of our more tasteless possessions can be blamed directly on the other's goading. God, those gaudy fish sculptures with fat lips painted in pinks and purple polka dots and the wall hangings with slightly sexual, well, maybe overtly sexual designs. The household decorations are nothing compared to the clothing and jewelry we have egged each other into buying. Could I ever actually wear seven-inch-long earrings? These costumes are not just inappropriate for any event we might attend. There is no way that I would ever want to be anywhere where these outfits could be worn. <laughs> so Sandy's house is filled, as is mine, with the quirky debris of our joint adventures. Sandy smiles, half smiles, due to her palsy, but she still smiles. She laughs at jokes and worries whether her children and friends will have good lives after she's gone. And damned if she doesn't still give unwanted advice. One night, we burn effigies. I burn my last relationship. Sandy burns her illness. Her daughter burns bad memories. Sandy is no easier a mom than she is a friend. Toward the end, she wonders if she is running out of time to put it all right, apologize to her children for the errors, real and imaginary, that parents make. We figure it's about a two-for-one ratio, two years of apologies for every one year of mothering before it all gets set right. And Sandy is running out of time. She writes books and churns out articles. She accumulates unfinished projects. Her work is her talisman against the fates. As long as she has unfinished business, death will certainly wait. She asks, how, with so much to do, can I die? Let the dull people go first. They aren't doing anything anyway. One evening, while Sandy sleeps, I go out to a malonga, a tango dance. Tango is a dance like no other. It is a seduction, a wordless conversation, a bonding of two persons, often strangers. It means nothing and everything. It is a momentary connection that ends when the music stops. But those few moments of merging one into the other or the opiates that dancers crave. The first dances between two strangers are like introductory conversations, revealing small insights and giving hints of the future. A handsome Argentinian asks me to dance. The connection is there with our first embrace. Our dance is comfortable and comforting. Even before I ask the question, I know Julio will come with me to dance for Sandy. The next morning, I find Julio's antique watch shop on Bourbon Street. It is a testimonial to time, a long, narrow shop with hundreds of pocket watches, fancy women's pin watches, and old watch bands. 
Hanging on the walls are paintings of tangle scenes where ghosts return for one last dance. The entire shop rhythmically ticks away the minutes. Julio locks the front door and walks with me to Sandy's. Despite her pain, Sandy is excited at the prospect of a private tango performance. In her living room, Julio rolls back the carpets and plays a tango CD while Sandy waits in her wheelchair. In this house, crowded with life's treasures, we begin to dance. Julio leads me in swooping baleo kicks and sensual leg wraps. We dance with the exaggerated and bold steps of a tango stage show. With passionate flourishes, we give Sandy the best performance we can dance. Then, imperceptibly, our dance changes. We hear Sandy's silence. Her breathing joins ours. Julio reacts to the desires of a second partner. We dance with Sandy, not for her. A calm intimacy descends. Our steps change from showy displays to shared size. We three listen carefully to each other. Our dance is a conversation about life, hopes, sorrows, disappointments, lost loves, beginnings and ends. We dance joyful tangos, playful tangos, and sorrowful tangos. We dance with our hearts as well as our feet and bodies. We dance life from a guttural place where the only expression possible is the music, the movement, And finally, the tears. Sandy is tired when we say goodbye. Julio and I return to his antique store. He unlocks the door but leaves off the lights. After a glass of red wine, we dance to Piazzolla's Oblivion in the still dark store. Outside on the street, the French Quarter bustles with loud tourists wearing shorts and t-shirts and spilling paper cups of daiquiris and margaritas. Inside the darkened shop, we dance slow, sad tangos. The clocks tick in unison and ghosts return for one last turn around the floor. We do not interrupt our conversation with words. Four days later, Dr. Sandra Hunter dies. But before she dies, she danced the tango. That was Tango for Three, written and read by Barbara Anderson. Thanks go to our esteemed technical wizard, Ian, for sound manipulation and bottom wrangling. Join us again next week for another Shouting in the Evening production. Cheerio!